This is episode number 36 with Sean Stevenson of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am your host coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. Hope you're all having a great week, guys. You know, what's been happening in my world, I'm really, really excited about our trip to the States, really, really excited about a ton of things we've got in the works for Founder. Uh, you guys are going to love some of the interviews we have coming. They're extremely valuable. And yeah, I'm just having fun and I'm loving hearing from you all. So, you know, if you are enjoying these interviews, if you are enjoying the magazine, please do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you, Nathan at foundermag.com. And now let's talk a little bit about today's guest, Sean Stevenson. I actually found Sean's work many, many years ago, and I found him to be an extremely inspiring person because he's gone through things that most of us would never, ever have to go through. And he's a very, very profound entrepreneur too. So I really had a really cool in-depth conversation with Sean around mentorship, you know, what it takes to build a successful business and all sorts of other valuable things that are going to be really, really helpful to you. So I'm just going to leave it at that and I'm going to leave your curiosity. I hope I've still got you and I'm going to leave your curiosity open. And uh, yeah, let's jump into the show. I hope you enjoy these interviews. If you are, please do leave us a review. It's super helpful. Let's jump in. Today I'm speaking with Sean Stevenson. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. So how did you get your job? <laughs> I got a job of speaking by being turned away from every other job that I applied for. You know, the start of my career is not sexy. It really started with discrimination. I was 
17 years old. And I applied to work at a limousine company as a dispatcher on a phone. I applied to work uh, as an office assistant in a chiropractic office. I applied to work uh, as a salesperson in an electronics store. I applied for maybe a couple other positions, all of which blatantly looked me in the face and said, we're not in the market of hiring somebody with a disability that's three feet tall. And it's kind of hard to believe that today because we have laws around the country that protect people with disabilities and, and that, you know, equal rights. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that people could blatantly discriminate against you in the workplace if you have a disability. Unlike race or sexual orientation or gender, it's very hard to unify a group of people on the planet that have all different types of disabilities. You know, if you're a woman, you're a woman. If you're, you know, black, you're black. If you're gay, you're gay. But what if what you have is so radically different between each person? A blind person and a person in a wheelchair have radically different challenges. And so it's very hard to, at least I experienced, unify a group to say, this is wrong. Well, so instead of getting angry, I got curious. And I got interested in how else can I make money if, I, if no one's going to hire me? And I'm sure if I would have kept going, I eventually probably would have found somebody with a soft spot, soft spot who would have maybe hired me, but it wasn't happening for a long while. Mm. So then I learned about small businesses and I learned that, wow, I could actually be my own boss. And I got hired for $75 for one hour when I was 17 years old in 1995-ish, I got hired to speak to a high school about what it's like to have a disability. And at $75, when you're 17 years old in the mid-90s, that's a lot of money. You think you're the richest kid alive. <laughs> and, you know, I bought a lot of video games and junk food, and I thought I could do this more often. And it kind of grew it. I started speaking to high schools while I was in high school. Then I started speaking to colleges when I was in colleges. And then I started to speak to corporations and hospitals and prisons and federal associations and conferences and organizations. And it just kept growing. And the more I put my focus on it, the more I got better at it, the better at the message, the delivery, the marketing my overall attitude around business. And then once I finally added the last piece that skyrocketed my business, which is a, a collection of mentors, some I pay, some do it out of the, you know, just kindness. And honestly, they're both important to me. But when I finally added the key component of a group of 21 mentors who really I turn to when I'm stuck or when I have questions or when my head's up my ass, these individuals tell me the truth. And their involvement in my career has helped me more than anything else. Mm, wow. Okay. There's a lot, lot I'd like to unpack here. Firstly, around the mentor piece, 21 mentors is, is a lot. Oh, I don't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> and when um, I say 21, the reason why I have 21 is just that I found that on average, if you have 21 mentors, seven of them are going to be active in your life at any moment. But you don't know which seven. And so it rotates. You know, I have three groups of seven. 
that and and these are just these are averages. These aren't strict numbers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it could be four. Sometimes it could be nine. Right. But I found that depending on what's going on in a busy person who's successful in life will depend on how much bandwidth they have for somebody else. And the groups of mentors that I have, they're not always the same people. I am constantly rotating in and out two to three new mentors based on the value exchange that's occurring. Some mentors have stayed in my group since the start. And I don't really take you know a sword out of my sheath and and knight them as Sean Stevenson's mentor or anything. There's no official ceremony of mentoring Sean. So none of them really even know necessarily that that they are my mentor. They just know that I'm either paying them or spending time with them. But I know I keep very good tabs on who is actively bringing value to me and who am I bringing active value to. And it's, it's been an incredible journey. And Maybe 10 years from now, I'll, I'll say that what I was doing was naive and that there's a better system. But right now, this is what's given me the most results. Mm, yeah, look, this is a great topic that I'd love to uh, touch on a lot more. So something that comes up a lot and a lot of readers actually reach out to me and, and ask, and, and I'm always trying to find out what the biggest problems and frustrations are for our readers and how I can help them. And something that comes up a lot is they say they need a mentor. And, you know, it was, it was so funny when you said, I, I don't knight these people that they're, that they're my mentor. Cause it's a little bit weird. If you, if you go to someone and say, Oh, can you be my mentor? Oh yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't recommend that because you're, you're taking value as opposed to delivering value. Mm. And whenever somebody confronts me and says, Sean, will you mentor me? My natural reaction is to, is to lean back and yeah. go, Whoa, Whoa. I'm over here busting my ass on my mission. Why do I need to carve out time for you? However, if an individual is playing a really big game in life, and let's say they just won a gold medal in the Olympics, and then they meet me at an event, and they ask if they could take me to coffee, and they already established that they're doing cool shit with their life, and they're, they're playing on a big level, then I'm more apt to want to take that meeting. Mm. And so then I take that meeting and they might say, you know what, I, I read your book and I, I like this and this, but I had a question about that. And now I see that they've actually done their homework on me and they've already started putting in time and energy into learning from me. Now I'm even more apt to want to mentor them. Then they say, hey, Sean, what do you recommend I do next? Is there any program of yours that I can purchase or enroll into a seminar that you're offering that could help me? Now we're talking because when somebody, when somebody pays me, I pay attention to them. Now, not all my mentors do I pay and not all my apprentices pay me, but I can say it's probably the quickest way to get a mentor's attention because there's a lot of noise in the world of people wanting things. When you say, hey, I'm willing to give you something that I know you would probably like, a.k.a. money, you get attention really quickly. Mm. So you would recommend if if somebody is trying to look for a mentor or someone that they look up to that have, that have walked down the path that they're about to take or achieved really big things that you aspire to, 
you would say, see how you can help them first, serve first, and then ask later? Yeah, I would do a two part. One is bring them value right away and not the value you think they like and not the value you would like, but the value that you found out and through investigation that you know they would like. For instance, people might think, oh, Sean likes reading. He's a big reader. He loves books. I'm going to write a book and give him a copy of my book. Uh, I probably don't care because people give me their books all the time. I have stacks, floor to ceiling of complete strangers' books that I'm never going to read. That at some point, my wife, Mindy, Mindy will say, Sean, what are you going to do with these books? You know you're not going to read them. And I go, yeah, you're right. I feel bad about not reading them, but I don't have any interest to read them. And she's like, well, then let's donate them. Let's tear out the, the name page where they inscribed it to you. And we're going to send it to the, you know, the, the Goodwill store, you know? And I only, I'm only sharing this truth with you because I never asked those people for a book. I got more books than I know what to do with in my life. I have enough books that if I stopped book, buying books today and I read them all, it would probably take me the rest of my life to read them all, okay? So giving me a random book or a book that you wrote, probably not going to make an impact. Now, if you say, Sean, I heard that you want to meet Will Smith. And I spent the last three years working in an organization that does a lot of uh, charity work with him. I just met with him. I told him all about you. And he would love to have a phone call with you. Now you got my attention. Now you're giving me value that I want. Not value that you think I want, but that you know I want because you did your homework. So you got to bring value that you know that mentor wants. And then the second thing is you got to be playing a game that is inspiring and exciting and interesting to the mentor. So if somebody comes to me and they say, Sean... I've done nothing with my life, but I want to work with you to do something cool. I have very little interest in that hmm. because they're basically coming saying, I'm bringing nothing to the table for your enjoyment. Now entertain me. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's, it's lopsided. Life is, you got to constantly ask, where on the teeter-totter am I? Am I on the bottom or the top? Because if I'm on the top, that means I'm not bringing any weight to this conversation. And so therefore, I'm not going to get to play a teeter-totter game with them. If the, if the mentor brings clear-cut value from the start, but you don't match them or at least come close or exceed that value, why do you think they'll want to continue to pay attention to you? Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, 100% spot on. And and when I look at my life and, and the mentors that I've acquired, certainly in life and business, it makes a lot of sense. But this kind of stuff, I kind of did naturally. For some people, it's not that easy, though. So, yeah, yeah you, you really unpacked that nicely. Another thing I'd like to touch on was when you first started, you got, you know, you started this speaking circuit and it's turned into, you know, books, information products, courses, and all those kinds of things. How did you? first start like you, you said that uh when you're 17 you got your first gig how did you build momentum and build up that business well i think the myth is that sean stevenson got into it and it took off like a rocket ship i would love for it to 
worked out that way. That's not how it worked out. Um, wow. I, got, I got into it, and it did grow, but it grew slowly over years until I finally took it seriously. It was more of a paid hobby. I did it part-time while I was going through school, and then when I even graduated, I got distracted by a lot of shiny objects. For a while, I thought I wanted to be a network marketer, and I joined three different network marketing companies, none of which worked out for me. I wasn't a good fit for them, and they weren't a good fit for me. That works for some people. That's great, but that wasn't in my path. So I got distracted for a while doing that. For a while, and I, I don't see this as a distraction. I feel like it was a great compliment. But for a while, I really became hardcore into studying the mind and becoming a therapist. And that's because one of my audience members was a young girl, probably junior high age, and she rolled up her sleeves. She came up to me after my speech. She rolled up her sleeves and she said, why do I do this to myself? And then she proceeded to show me her arms and the arms had been sliced up, like looked like a cat attacked her, but were deeper than cat claws. They, they looked like somebody put a lot of energy in cutting themselves. And I had never heard of self-mutilation. I had never seen somebody harm themselves. And it threw me back. It scared me. It, it made me feel ill-prepared to help people because I didn't have the answer. And I thought, wow, I just stirred this girl up for one hour telling stories to make her laugh and cry. And now she's sharing this with me. And I don't have a good response. And I said, what? what anyone should say in these scenarios, which is the truth. And I said, I don't know, but I'll go find out. And that's when I went back to school to become a therapist. And I spent a good additional eight years back in school to become a psychotherapist and study the best of the best on why we do what we do and what causes us to self-combust and what causes us to take off in life. And I really went down the road of therapy and helping people one-on-one -on -one as opposed to in groups, like as a speaker. And I did some speaking, but for a few years, I dedicated a lot of my time to being a full-time therapist. And so I became a professional listener, not just a professional speaker. And then as time went on, the careers started to balance out. I, I spent time as a therapist. I spent time as a speaker. And then I, you know... I realized that I had to clone myself, so I became a, a marketer of products like books and CDs and DVDs so that my information could sit on your nightstand on the other side of this planet without me having to be there, and they could outlive me. You know, God willing, my book, Get Off Your Butt, will be on shelves and in homes long after I'm dead and buried whenever that day comes, and that's what's great about the spoken word versus the written word is the spoken word's powerful, but the written word lives on and the recorded word lives on. So for me, it was a, it was a process of kind of kicking and screaming into the world of entrepreneurs because I wanted to become president of the United States. I worked for President Bill Clinton. I was working for a U.S. congressman. I was on a, I was being, I wouldn't say groomed because it sounds cooler than it was, um, mm. but I certainly was grooming myself to be a full-time professional politician because I wanted to 
impact the world. And I thought it was going to be through government. But I, meanwhile, I had a knock at the door over and over and over throughout the years of people wanting to learn from me as a speaker, author, or therapist. And then I realized, stop trying to sell the world on chocolate ice cream if everybody in the world thinks that you're the best at strawberry. Create strawberry ice cream if that's what the marketplace is asking for. But a hard-headed, ego-driven, ego young punk kid doesn't want to hear that. Hmm. So it sounds like you, 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 you've, you've gone through and done a lot of different things and you've, you've found your calling. Would you say that right now? Uh, I think the calling's constantly changing. It's evolving. It's growing with me. I've certainly found my, my profession. I've found my advocation, like what I make my vocation, what I make my money at. But even that is changing. Even that is evolving. So I'll give you an example. I have two mentors. One, and they're, they're completely opinionated with opposite paradigms of the world in business. And imagine being the guy in the middle that's trying to decide which mentor to believe when they're both successful. Mm. One mentor says, Sean, you need to know where you're going to be in 10 years. And you need to work backwards. You need to know a clear picture. What are you doing? What are you making? Who are you with? Where are you traveling? You need to get a clear picture and know exactly where you're headed. That sounds great. He's making millions of dollars. He's got a family. He looks happy. Okay. I meet this other mentor. This other guy's got all those things too. But he says, Sean, I disagree with that mentor. I think that if you hold too tightly to your vision of where you're going to be in 10 years, You'll miss great opportunities that'll come along that'll be better and more fun and more enjoyable and more financially lucrative than the ideas that you have of where you want to be in 10 years. And he's super successful. And I'm sitting in the middle going, who do I believe? What do I do? And that's when I came up to the realization that your mentors are only offering ideas to you that you have to go inside your own gut and say, what works for me? And for me, it's kind of straddling both worlds. I'm clear on where I want to be and where I'm headed, but I'm also flexible to, if it's not fun, then I'm not going to keep doing it. And if it's it, not just fun, but it, if it's not fun and it's not producing results, then what the hell am I doing, right? Mm. And so, for instance, I, I wouldn't say I've met my calling because the calling keeps changing. My calling, you know, five years ago may look the same that it does now to speak, but I'm doing it so differently because I don't know if you heard about this, but I was in a near-death accident, a near-fatal accident about, oh gosh, what are we going on? Uh, four months ago, five months ago? Yeah, um, I did. Yeah, and that was a turning point for me because... I was going around the world collecting checks ranging between ten dollars and $30,000 for one-hour work. So wow. by no means am I complaining about the success I've had. But I, what happened was I was burning out. My body was getting more and more tired getting on airplanes. Well, then I had this accident, and I couldn't get on an airplane. I couldn't travel to make my living. And... You know, I don't, 
know where you're at financially or where you want to be at. But I can tell you from my own personal experience, just because a person has a lot of money doesn't mean that they're secure because if they keep raising their quality of living, then the money shuts off. If they weren't smart about how they invested it in their insurance and everything like that, they can be in a jam just as quickly as somebody without money. And that's where I found myself is that I had made my money trading time and not having my money make me money and not having my intellectual properties make me money. And there was a lot of things that I had done that were scary when I couldn't work. And I made a massive change in my life where I said, that's it. I'm done playing this game. This has been fun. I've enjoyed for the last 21 years. Well, it's about 17 where I've been paid 21 that I've been speaking because I started speaking in when I was a teen, you know, like early teen. But I said, that's it. I'm going to stop getting on airplanes to go fly around to collect checks. I now have a skill set that is important to others. I'm going to teach people how to do that. I'm going to teach the young entrepreneurs, the, the old entrepreneurs that want to come out of retirement and everybody in between that wants to learn how do you get on an airplane and collect checks for 10, 15, $20, $30,000 a pop. And so I went from being a prince that went around the world to see all the lands to a king that's building a kingdom where I say, if you want to hear Sean Stevenson speak, you come to my town, you pay me a fee, and you sit in an audience, and I'll teach you everything I know. And so I've changed my model. Now we're more in a seminar model. And I can say, and I say this as humbly as I can, even though it's not going to sound very humbling, but I went from making $30,000 in an hour to a quarter million dollars in an hour by shifting the model to play a bigger game. Now I have a lot more to risk. That's not all a net profit to Sean Stevenson, but that's the, that's the game that I'm playing now where instead of having to go out to you, I'm having the use of the world come to see me to get the information that I've gathered over the last 21 years. Mm. So you've, you've kind of in a way created your business more around your lifestyle. Exactly. And my lifestyle used to be travel. I mean, before I was married, I loved traveling because there was always a new girl to meet, right? And <laughs> I, I'm not making any qualms about it. I adored meeting lots of women back in my single days, not just for the sexual companionship, but the play, the flirting, the fun, the, the, the dates, the adventure, the courting, all of that. It was more than just the physical intimacy. And when I got married, I wanted to do that, but just with one person. And if I was constantly traveling and she has her own life and she's not always on the road with me, that wasn't as fun. It wasn't as fun to be in Hawaii and be in a gorgeous hotel by myself. I, I wanted to be back home in my home with my amazing woman and building a career where people came to my amazing spot in the world and played with me. Mm. So I'm curious, let's switch gears a little and talk about your challenges in life and business, because you've gone through a lot. And I think what's, what's really powerful is I think our audience can learn a lot from how do you overcome some of these challenges. Sure. So give me an example of what you want to know specifically. 
let's start let's start with life like you said that life when you you know no no one would give you a job like how did that feel and 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 how did you overcome all these challenges sure you know most people look at me and they think they know what my challenges are and they're actually really wrong people think that my challenges are based on my appearance and my condition that's only about two to ten percent on average of the challenges that I face. The rest are, you know, how do you balance a marriage while traveling? How do you make sure that you keep the money that you make and that you don't spend it all foolishly? How do you invest <laughs> your how do you invest your money? How do you hire the right people to protect your assets? How do you surround yourself with incredible friends that give you great advice and, and make you a better person versus take from you and drain you? You know, like those those Everyday challenges are what I face far more than my disability, but there are days where my disability trumps all the other challenges. You know, when I was in my accident, I had my accident, that could have happened to anyone really, because it was a traumatic impact on my body. And I was thrown four feet onto the concrete and I, I, fractured my skull and had bleeding on the brain. I had a concussion for 25 days. I had no short-term memory ability. So if we had a conversation, Nathan, and 10 minutes later, I ask you the same thing, you'll be like, Sean, we've already covered that. And I didn't have any recollection that we covered it because my memory had deleted it for 25 days. It was very scary. I didn't know if it was ever going to come back. In those moments, what I had to do in those challenging times Faith is all I had. And I don't mean in a religious sense. I just mean in, well, there's got to be a bigger picture here. And I know that if I'm willing to let go of control, it's going to be a lot easier process than trying to fight for the control with some invisible force out there. And call it God, call it universe, call it law of attraction, call it science, call it whatever makes you comfortable. But there are powers that play outside of us that are much bigger than us. If you know the, the joke is whether, whether you're spiritual or not, I still think the joke's funny. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Hmm. You know, I had a plan to hold a seminar in mid August, and then I got into this accident and I had to reschedule it. And we lost a bunch of enrollments and had to send back a bunch of money. And you know, meanwhile, we have hospital bills rolling in at tremendous speeds that were not pretty. And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling tremendous pressure of what am I going to do? I just promised all these people that I would hold this seminar. Now people are having to cancel their flights and the hotel is mad at me. And, you know, all these things are hitting me. Meanwhile, I'm in pain. I'm on pain medications. I'm losing my short-term memory and all that's hitting me. And truthfully, the way I got through that is the way I've gotten through every major challenge, which is kind of just, just kind of smile and laugh and go, all right, let's see where the hell this is going to go. You're not in control. Let's see what's the bigger picture. And I can tell you that my event was a much bigger success four months later after it was rescheduled than it ever would have been, you know, right after the accident. So sometimes the thing that you hold so tightly of what you want to achieve, there's something much better out there for you, but your mind can't comprehend it. It's like when I ask somebody, describe to me the perfect day. And then they tell me their perfect day. And then I put it on steroids and say, well, what if this happened 
in addition. They're like, oh, wow, that's even better. I never even thought of that was possible. I'm like, exactly. Because our minds can only think so big. And that's why I'm so grateful that there's powers outside of us that somehow can think bigger or can act bigger or have a bigger impact on us than our conscious minds can handle. Wow. Yeah, that was really powerful. Yeah, you, you kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah, wanted to make sure that wasn't some incoherent rant. <laughs> no, no, no. Because it kind of answered my question I was going to ask Ness, like, how, how did you cope? But you pretty much just, as you say, you always do. You just kind of laugh and, and say, you know, ob the obstacle is the way it'll work out and things always do for you, right? Well, I'll tell you, that's eventually where I get. <laughs> but that's not where I start in the moment of impact. I don't know if you know, there's a prize-winning fighter back in the day named Mike Tyson, right? Yeah. And he was in like silly movies now. And But anyway, back in the day, he was the most feared fighter on the planet. And it's because he was ruthless. And he would pummel his opponents to the point that, you know, they, they couldn't recognize themselves. And he said, you know, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. And, and where I think that's a brilliant statement is everybody has an idea of what they want until they get smacked by something out of their control. And it's who you, you reveal who you are on this planet in moments where you're hit with an uncontrollable circumstance. When all of a sudden I was in a hospital and a doctor saying, you have bleeding on your brain, we might need to rush you into the operating room to remove a chunk of your skull to release the pressure. You know, that was a game changer. Mm. It was a game changer because I realized that I was not in control at that moment that I had to surrender. And that's where like prayer and meditation and visualization, I, I called on everything. I mean, I was, I was looking into voodoo. I, I was willing to try anything. And it was because I, I knew I, I couldn't do it on my own. It was gonna need to be a force outside of me to step in or I was done. And that's why I pulled out my cell phone and made a video to my Facebook following saying, can you pray for me if you believe in prayer? Can you send me healing energy if you believe in energy? Can you just think positive thoughts about me if you believe in positive thoughts? Can you do whatever feels safe, right, and comfortable for you? Because I need everything I can right now. And, you know, some might call it a coincidence. Some might call it a miracle. But within a matter of two hours, hundreds of thousands of people, almost millions of people from around the world were thinking, praying, visualizing for me, and the bleeding stopped. And I, I don't... I don't know how to explain it because the doctors can't even explain it. So am I more of a woo-woo guy as I get older? Damn straight. <laughs> because I'm realizing that when you're younger, you question everything. You know, you're like, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And then as you get older and you start getting experience and wisdom under your belt, you go, it's just cause. And not in a, like a resigned way, but in like a, a peaceful way, like, you know what? I don't have the answer to how that blood stopped, but I'm sure glad it did. Yeah, no, that, that that was that was really that was really awesome. Thank you for sharing that, man. I love how how just open and honest and raw you are. Well, I think it's because it's been ripped out of me. I can't say that that's come naturally. You know, when when you've been poked and prodded 
as many times as I have by by doctors and nurses when you've had people have to get you dressed in the morning and put you on a toilet at times, put you in a car, shower you. When, when privacy isn't an option, you have one of two choices. Become clinically depressed and hate your life or become raw and see vulnerability as a strength and accept it. And I found that that way was far more lucrative in every sense of the word. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm loving this conversation. I'm, I'm mindful of your time. So we have to work towards wrapping up, Sean. A couple more questions around the business side of things. Any big failures that people can learn from, from your experience? Any, any traps that you'd like to, to give people a heads up on? Yeah. Thinking that somebody's going to save you. You know, uh, I love the movie uh, Zero Dark Thirty, I think it's called. It's about how they found Bin Laden. And, oh, yes. you know, the majority of the movie, I didn't really care for it because it was kind of dark. But there was one line that I loved where the commander of the SEAL team came in and said, no one's coming to save us. Like, no one's going to swoop in and, and save you. This, this comes down to you. And I love that quote because no one is coming to save you, Nathan. No one's coming to save me. The only person that's, that's got a chance at making our life better is us, ourselves. And that, that doesn't mean dog eat dog and that like we got to be self-driven only, selfish. I think it's just more of knowing that your career, your financial situation, your investments, your health, your relationship status Everything that matters to you, no one's going to swoop in and help you with it. You might have mentors, but in the end, the mentors are thinking about them, and that's okay. And when you accept that your career is 100% your responsibility, it's not your sales team's responsibility, it's not your investors, your customers' responsibility, it's your responsibility. And the mistakes that I've made are hoping that some outside marketer, publicist, sales team banker, agent, producer of content. Like it's whenever I wanted somebody to come in and be my savior that I got burned because there is no savior in life. You are the savior for yourself. And by coming to that realization, I've made a lot more money and I've helped a lot more people and I've had a lot more fun. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. I I feel you there, Uh, you know. I was thinking, when you were saying that, I was thinking examples in my head. That's a great one. What about marketing? Do you have any good tactics around growth? A lot of people listening will have just started something, trying to trying to grow it, get traction. Any strategies, tactics, things that really shout out at you that you wish you knew around, you know, maybe not personal branding, but branding or, or, or growth? Yeah. yeah. So I'll quickly cut this up in three parts. So there's sales, marketing, and branding. Branding is the image that people think of when they think of what you're bringing to the planet, if they're even thinking about that. That's your brand. You know, when you think about Coca-Cola, you think it has a different brand than McDonald's, then they have a different brand than Apple, right? Everybody, the brand is your identity, how the customer thinks of you. Then you got marketing. Marketing is the storytelling. It's the, everything you do to get into a conversation to offer them something to buy. Everything you do that gets people into a conversation that turns into a sales 
transactional conversation, that's marketing. And then sales is just, do you want this? Yes or no. And here's what's going to happen if you do get it. Here's what's going to happen if you don't get it. Here's what we've learned. Here's who's succeeded because they bought. Here's what happened to the people that didn't buy. That's the sale. So there are three very separate things. I think branding is not as important as marketing. And I think sales is important. But in the end, I think marketing is the most important. Because if you're a really good salesman, but you have no one to talk to, you have no prospects, who cares? If you got a really beautiful image and a website and your brand is wonderful, but no one knows to go to that website, who cares? It's like sales is the oxygen to your business. If you're not sales, you can't keep the door open. Well, sales is the oxygen. Then what's marketing in that metaphor? Marketing is the breathing. It's the lungs. And you need your lungs to be working properly. And you need both lungs online and inhaling and exhaling. And what I find is most people, they'll put together sales tools, but they'll never market those tools. And so therefore, they never take a deep breath. They either hyperventilate by trying to do too many things at once, or they hold their breath because they're scared about being judged. So they never put their product out there. They never market it. And so I would say the best tactic is fall in love with marketing. Stop caring about your sales. Stop caring about impressing people with your numbers. Well, numbers are awesome and important. Get excited about letting the world know what you have to offer and get excited about figuring out why it's a benefit to them and speak into their languaging and their thinking. You want to enter into the conversation they're already having in their own head. And, you know, I spent a lot of money on marketing, a lot of time on marketing. I have mentors that I, I pay one mentor $25,000 a year to, to spend three days with, you know, I spend about or seven days with this person for 25 grand. And it's because I know the value of learning from the best. I moved my whole business to another part of our country over here so that I could be close to my marketing mentors because I knew that I had some phobias around marketing and fears that I had to work through and being around them would be of value to me. I moved my whole life to understand marketing. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. Last question. Action items for aspiring and novice entrepreneurs. What's the two best pieces of advice and action items you'd like to give? And uh, any final words? Yeah, two pieces. One, find people that have what you want and that also you respect. And figure out a way to bring them a ton of value and do cool shit that gets their attention. And then enter into a long-term relationship with them in a business sense of the manner where you, over years and years period, extract value from them, but first delivering far more value than they ever expected from you. That would be the first thing. Mm. Uh, there's like 12 things in there, I know. The second thing, <laughs> the second thing is realize that the most detrimental thing to your business is not protecting your confidence. This is what I learned from my mentor, Dean Graziosi. And Dean just made $214 million this year. That's somebody I, you know, pay attention to in the wealth department. You know, that money is not the only indicator of success, but it sure has an interesting impact over our psyche. And, um, you know, he says that 
you know, you need to protect your confidence at all costs. That means if you're around people that you don't feel really confident when you're with them because they tear you down, get out of that person's life. If you're doing something that is detrimental to your confidence, you're doing a, an action step or a belief that you keep repeating that's tearing down your sense of confidence, you need to interrupt that pattern, find experts, surround yourself with knowledge that's going to turn that around. Because if you're not in alignment with yourself, if you are not your biggest cheerleader, if you aren't congruent, and what I mean by congruent is your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions aren't aligned, then no matter what level of experts you hire or podcasts you listen to or magazines you follow, none of it's going to last. You're going to self-sabotage. It's only a matter of time. You have to be congruent. You have to protect your confidence. Your confidence is the, the part of you that pulls through when you don't have a shred of evidence that you're going to make it. Mm. Yeah, that's a killer one. I never heard that before, but that's great. Well, yeah, look, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Sean. It was it was a really interesting and awesome conversation. And uh, I, I have things that I personally will take away from our conversation too. So thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. And I'm glad it could be of value to you and, and the listener of this pro program. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer that uh, those that are willing to study from the best and and really bathe themselves in really good knowledge, they're doing what my one of my mentors calls planned inevitability, that where you set yourself up to inevitably hit your goals, whether you like it or not, you're going to get there. It's like setting the microwave and then hitting go. Unless the power in your house goes out, that microwave is going to hit that temperature, whether you like it or not, because you set the timer and you set you set the degrees and it's going, it's planned inevitable. And, you know, by researching lots of the best material, then implementing the material, you're, you're going to get planned inevitable success. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.